Hi, this is Marlene, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Stories of the Supernatural. Whether you're watching a video or listening to a podcast, please like and subscribe to us so that you can get notification of when a new show is released. Links to videos or MP3 files can be found on MiamiGhostChronicles.com. Go to MarlenePardo.com for information on new book releases. I narrate several podcast series that can be found on major podcast platforms and can also be listened to via Alexa, Sonos, and other home systems. Look for Supernatural Storytime for scary storytelling, Nightshade Diary for classic horror and adventure stories, Stories of the Supernatural for interviews with different guests on the show. If you want to get noteworthy news about the paranormal world, true crime, conspiracy stories, and anything that is just plain weird, you can visit Strange Than Fiction Stories tab at MiamiGhostChronicles.com or find us on Blogspot. I want to thank you for being part of my audience, and I think you are all wonderful. Hi everyone, this is Marlene with Stories of the Supernatural, and this week's episode is Volume 2 of Mysteries of Old Florida. The first case we're looking at is something that happened back right before the turn of the century. April of 1897, Jacksonville, Florida. And it was a strange spring that year in Jacksonville. In April, off of Phelps Street, in a desolate spot, the body of a dead infant was found. There were no clues as to identity of the child or its parents. It appeared this was not the only time a dead child was found at that particular spot. A few weeks later, pretty Marie Louise Gatto, 17, was gunned to death outside her home on Old Panama Road. This took place at the front gate and she was brought into the home still alive even though five bullets had struck her. Her father, Gabriel H. Gatto, the owner of the Modelo Cigar Factory, had just arrived a little after 6 p.m. to find his daughter barely clinging to life. She told her family the man who attacked her was George Edward Pitzer, 20, a suitor who wouldn't take no for an answer. Judge A.O. Wright was summoned to the Gatto mansion so that he could take her dying declaration, which was the following. I know I am about to die and that I am in a dying condition. It was Eddie Pitzer who shot me. I looked right at him and saw his face and know that it was he. I saw him shoot me. He shot me five or six times. He shot me this evening as I was coming in and without provocation. Then she added, but I'm glad I refused to marry him even after this. As her dying declaration, it could be used in court proceedings, even if she died, and it was thought it would provide an airtight case. Within a day of Marie's death, the coroner's jury held an inquiry and returned a verdict charging George Edward Pitzer. He denied it was him who committed the crime. Eddie Pitzer, as he was better known, was the son of James L. Pitzer, a prominent merchant who hailed from Pittsburgh but 15 years before I had come to Jacksonville and went into business there. The newspapers included in their stories about the crime that if the Cubans got Pitzer, he would be lynched immediately. Amidst the flurry of preparing for the trial, which in those days was held very shortly after the crime, 
another strange murder occurred. On April 30, 1897, only a week after Marie was murdered, 2nd Lieutenant of Police William E. Gruber was killed by someone hidden in some bushes. They crushed his skull after hitting him repeatedly with a club. It was the same lonely spot on the outskirts of town, right off Phelps and Liberty Street, where the dead infant was found. This area of town was dicey, but Lieutenant Gruber was familiar with it because in 1880, he was living on Liberty Street. He lived there with his wife, Kate, and his four-year-old daughter, Eulalie. Back then, his occupation was a house painter. His daughter died in 1886. However, there was another version of events concerning Lieutenant Gruber's murder. In this version, he was shot in the head, not clubbed to death. His reason for being there was investigating the dead infant found the week before. And the newspapers described his face was bared in the sand with the right hand clenched and held against the lips. In the back of the head on the right side and just above the right ear was a bullet hole from which blood and brains had oozed and clotted in the hair. Six feet from the body on the ground was laying a partly sucked lemon. The uniform coat was pulled up over the right hip and the pistol holster was plainly seen. But the pistol was gone. The only clue at the scene was a lady's blue serge belt and a small white handkerchief, which lay about 50 feet from the corpse. Now, some friends believed he was lured to the area and ambushed. Others thought he was killed by a married man's vengeance, and others even thought a woman had done the killing. During the investigation into Lieutenant Gruber's murder, it was discovered he was a firm believer in spiritualism. He converted to this belief system after H.A. Longshore, who ran an upholstery shop in the city, took him to a seance. There he met a medium known as Mrs. Buchanan, who gave him a communication from Gruber's young daughter, Eulalie, who had died about 10 years ago. His belief in spiritualism then took off. It was so strong that he consulted the spirits in regard to certain murders, one of which was the crime of the murder of Marie Gatto, and also the Springfield baby murders. Gruber attended a seance in which he asked Mrs. Buchanan about the murder of Marie Gatto. In trance, the medium told him that if he wanted to find the pistol used to kill the girl, it could be found in the woods in Springfield. The spirits also warned that they saw danger ahead and urged caution and not to go by himself. Despite the warning, Gruber went out alone and was clubbed or shot to death. There was one short article published by only one local newspaper describing where Lieutenant Gruber, despite Marie's dying declaration that Edward Pitzer was responsible, claimed that it was not true and that he had learned something the Pitzer's defense team was planning to use. His friends thought the true culprit killed the lieutenant in order to safeguard their identity. Now, the Gatto family owned the Modelo Cigar Factory, which had been established in 1870 by Alejandro Huao and Henry Frito, brother-in-laws of Gabriel Gatto, Marie's father. Other Gatto family members owned cigar factories in Key West. The Gatto family were not only prominent in Jacksonville businesses, but her uncle Jose Huao was elected 
to Jacksonville City Council four times, 1881, 83, 85, and 93. He brought Jose Marti to Jacksonville starting in 1891 in order to enlist the Jacksonville Cubans to help in the fight to liberate Cuba from Spain. In 1894, Cubans would meet secretly at Juan's stores, five blocks east of the cigar factory to raise money and make plans. Jacksonville in those years swirled with the skullduggery of the Cubans and their revolt against the Spaniards. Jose Martí Juan and their band of revolutionaries eventually moved their junta up from Jacksonville, about 36 miles to an inn called Florida House in Fernandina, from which they departed on January 18th. Martí died in May of 1895 in Cuba in the Battle of Dos Rios. Now, a few days after the crime of Marie's murder, Colonel Jose Carbón, the Cuban Army's chief chemist, was given leave to come to America, supposedly to visit an ill family member. But in truth, his mission was related to Marie's murder. He had fallen in love with Marie while visiting Jacksonville previously and asked her to marry him, even though she had refused him. Another Cuban revolutionary named Domingo Herrera had also fallen in love with Marie Gato and asked to marry her, but they were not officially engaged yet. The trial for the murder of Marie Gato started only a few weeks after her death. A witness named G.W. Wetmore said he saw Edward Pitzer walking with Marie along the railroad tracks close to her home. He tried taking her hand and kissing it, but she refused him. Marie's father, Gabriel, testified that he once saw Eddie Pitzer bringing Marie candy bought at the E.L. Smith Candy Factory, and she rejected the gift. The furious Pitzer threw the candy into the trees and a nearby fountain in the Gato's yard. The testimony described George Pitzer as a man obsessed with a lovely young lady who did not want to have a relationship with him and who knew there were rivals in the wings waiting to claim her as their own. Then, a man by the name of Lycurgus Dinsmore Bigger, who together with James Pitzer, Eddie's father, ran a merchandising firm, said he had seen a, quote, phantom Negro stalking Marie, end quote. Lycurgus had even named a son born in 1894, Edward Pitzer Bigger. So indeed, the men had not only close business ties, but personal ones as well. Many suspected this mysterious stalker Lycurgus described would be the one to take the fall for Edward Pitzer and so doubt in the minds of many, if not all, the jurists. Despite the Pitzer trial filling the courtroom, very little of the actual daily testimony was published by the newspapers. Attorney Alexander St. Clair Abrams, who figured in the Packwood murder trial, defended Edward Pitzer. And then the newspapers noted how he fainted after presenting his closing argument to this jury. The jury was taken to the scene of the crime, but the most mysterious event was that Marie Gato's dying declaration was ruled out. In the end, the jury announced its verdict of not guilty after deliberating for 20 hours. The trial lasted 10 days. By June 5th, Edward Pitzer left town for Pittsburgh, escorted by his uncle. Police accompanied them to the train station in order to assure their safety, since it was feared the Cuban populace in Jacksonville would take matters into their own hands.
Perhaps it was heartbreak that caused Marie's father, Gabriel, to lose his life on August 7th, 1898, at the age of 51. It must have been difficult to lose his daughter to a murder, but even worse, that he had not able to receive justice for her. In October of 1898, Mr. Guerra from the Tampa Cigar Company of Guerra Diaz and Company purchased the Modelo Cigar Factory, and in May of 1899, it burned down. It appeared to be an act of arson, since the safe inside the office was robbed before the building was set ablaze. As to George Edward Pitzer, who fled Jacksonville and settled in Pennsylvania after trying to evade a town full of angry Cubans, he went on to work for his father's wholesale candy company and in 1911 married Edna Kumpf. He died December 3, 1914, aged 37, at his home located at 3924 Bellrose Avenue, Dormont, Pennsylvania. The funeral was held in the home and the burial was private. Less than a year later, his wife followed him to the grave in November of 1914. She was 32 years old. They had no children. Gabriel Gato's family continued to live in Jacksonville. And in 1898, his other daughter, Georgia Ann, married Thomas Chapuzat, who belonged to a wealthy family involved in the tobacco industry in Tampa. In 1900, the couple lived with Henrietta at 822 Adams Street, with the remaining unmarried children, Willie, 23, Elvira, 17, Mercedes, 15, Dolores, 10, and Jose, 8. Henrietta Juan Gato, Marie's mother, died in 1909. By then, she had gone to live with her daughter, Georgia, in Tampa. Now, fast forward to 1926. Georgia Chapuzat, Marie's sister, is now 47. She unexpectedly dies on March 5th. She had taken ill at a rooming house she owned, which was located at 1513 Tampa Street. She was taken to Cook Sanatorium, where she died. It was discovered later that $7,000 worth of her jewelry and a bank book were missing from her room, and police detectives were assigned to the case to make sure there was no foul play. It seemed that physicians were called only after she was found delirious, even though, after examining her at the hospital, it was said she died from natural causes. And Mrs. King, who lived at the address, said that Mrs. Chapuzat had received numerous visitors, including attorneys, to her room in the last few weeks. Mrs. King said that Mrs. Chapuzat told her she had several large diamonds, which she kept in her room. She had also sold several tracts of land recently. Her mother-in-law, Carla Chapuzat, had died the previous year in April, apparently the matter was resolved to the police's satisfaction and further notices only involved her brother Jose, who was handling her estate. The Gato House in Jacksonville stood for a hundred years, but all that's left now in present day are steps that brought a visitor from Silver Street to the front yard, and it was demolished in 2000. Now another branch of the Gato family built a house that also had its own strange history. In 1885, on Virginia Street in Key West, Eduardo Hidalgo Gato built a stately two-story house. He started a streetcar line. He was a director of the Bank of Key West and ran one of the largest cigar factories in the United States. He built the house with 12 rooms, 
They had 12-foot ceilings that faced a center courtyard. His wife, Mercedes, the mistress of the house, was said to stand on the gallery and overhear the meetings of the Cuban patriots who would gather to discuss efforts to gain liberty from Spain. The Gato's tenancy in the house was short-lived, and 18 months later, they moved to a house on Duval and South Street. They left the house to their foreman to live in with his family. They stayed there until 1911. Enter Maria Valdez de Gustens, also known as Mother Gustens, a Cuban nurse who joined a dozen other women and asked Mr. Gato if they could use the house as a hospital for the indigent. It was called La Casa de los Pobres, the house of the poor. Officially, though, it opened on October 10th in 1911 as Mercedes Hospital as a tribute to Mrs. Gato, who died in 1903. Mother Gustens ran the hospital and lived there as well. She would check on her patients during the day and night, dressed in a gray ankle-length skirt and long sleeve blouse with a high collar. The doctors who came to the hospital did so on a volunteer basis, and it was Maria Gustens as superintendent who begged and cajoled for equipment and supplies to keep the hospital going. Then a change came to the orderly existence that existed within the walls of that little hospital. It was 1924 and there was a decision made to move it to 1209 Virginia Street with the help of a single mule along with pulleys and rollers. The purpose was to make room for Bayview Park. Then in 1943, the hospital was closed due to lack of funds and the inability to obtain the services of a superintendent. The last 10 years, it housed aged people with ill health and operated only on donations from the county and the city. By then, Maria Gustens, who has served as superintendent for 25 years, had passed away. It was then that the ghost sighting started. For a time, the structure stood empty with broken windows. Cockfights were held behind the building. After the hospital closed, it went through a stage as a beauty shop and a girls' finishing school. Eventually, the structure was made into an apartment building in 1945. In 1976, a nurse who lived on the first floor said she saw, quote, a white sort of energy was crossing from one end of the room to the other. I had the feeling of being invaded, that something that was not me was in the room, end quote. A previous occupant of the apartment had told the nurse that she was awakened in the night by a woman standing over her, holding her wrist as if taking a pulse. Behind her stood two orderlies. Another tenant, who lived in an upstairs room, said his roommate was awakened from a nap when he, quote, saw something sparkling in a long dress. He said it came over to him and then went away, end quote. He said he knew of several people that wouldn't stay the night in that building if they paid them to. Now, there was another tenant. He was an itinerant carpenter who stayed in one of the rooms on and off. One day, he woke up suddenly at 3 a.m. and saw the spirit sitting on his bed. That was the end of his stay that night, and he never returned. Between 1970 to 1972, another tenant said Maria's spirit would check in about three or four times per week. She would feel a touch on the wrist and perhaps on the forehead. It seemed that the nurse was still making her rounds. She was usually seen wearing the gray uniform that she wore when she was alive. Another tenant felt that there were two other spirits who she identified as the Gato's daughters. She said, 
quote, one appears to be in her late 30s and always wear a long dress. She often goes onto the balcony at night. The other is short, matronly, probably in her 40s, end quote. Near the house is the Navy commissary, which was once the factory of Eduardo H. Gato, which is why he probably built the house at that location in the first place. Close to the factory, Eduardo Gato built a cluster of cottages for his workers that became known as Gatoville. In the end, some mysteries were never solved. Who dumped the dead babies in the secluded spot at Phelps and Liberty Streets, where Lieutenant Gruber met his end? Was his death due to an investigation of the dead infants, or was it tied to the Gato murder? Or could it have been a disgruntled husband, perhaps even a woman that had been scorned? And how about the warning from the spirits? Did they really try to warn him through Mrs. Buchanan? Then there's the murder of Marie-Louise Gato. That remained unsolved, or was it? It's hard to deny the last words uttered by a dying girl who had no reason to name Pitzer unless he was her murderer. But it's hard to overlook the flavor of behind-the-scene machinations that might have involved the local press who angled stories or lacked thereof certain ways to obscure the desperate act of an obsessed young man, even against the wealthy Gato family. Then you go forward a few years to Marie's sister, Georgia Gato Chapuzot, who died suddenly when she was only 47 years old. Was something done to her in order to gain access to her jewelry and her bank book? By then, her in-laws were dead, and so was her husband. Were there people aware that part of her holdings included their inheritance that had passed on to her? Some mysteries find resolution and others don't, and perhaps if there were any who knew the answers, decided for whatever reason that it was better they keep their peace. Perhaps they thought, what's the difference now? This person is dead. Or perhaps there were other things like their own lives which were at stake. Many times for the living, the ones left behind. Silence is the most expedient and safest thing to do. Our second case is titled, What Happened to Phyllis Harmon? It's 1926, Clearwater, Florida. Law enforcement in Clearwater was serious about breaking the liquor laws. In 1925, Sheriff Roy Booth, in his first official act in Pinellas County, led a raiding party to a shack at the mouth of the Anclote River, where authorities confiscated more than 3,000 quarts of liquor. Phyllis Harmon was a hostess at the Ritz Garden, near the south and city limits of Clearwater, Florida. The prohibition, the law of the land, was king, and the club had been raided several times. Now, this last time, Phyllis pled guilty to violating the liquor laws and was fined $100 and given a suspended sentence of 60 days in the county jail if she left the city. She agreed to do so because she probably suspected the judge wouldn't give her another pass if she was hauled in again for selling liquor. This last time, it all started with a woman who lived close to the Ritz Garden who called the police and spoke directly to Sheriff Roy Booth, complaining that her husband got home habitually drunk and that he got his liquor at the Ritz Garden. Sheriff Booth probably didn't want to face the angry housewife, 
So the Ritz Garden got raided, and 200 quarts of homebrew and 8 quarts of red liquor were found by the deputies. True to her word, Phyllis disappeared, and there were plenty of speakeasies in Florida she could have gone to to find employment. Five years passed, and then in a shallow ditch close to the Clearwater Largo Road, a skeleton was found. The Ritz Garden Dance Hall once did business in the vicinity, but it closed its doors in 1927, one year after Phyllis was run out of town. The spot was 50 feet from the Seaboard Railroad track, but it was too far for a body to have been thrown from a train. What made the authorities believe it was Phyllis is that close to the bones was a size four and a half brown leather Oxford shoe. Those who knew Phyllis said this was the type of shoe she used. The remains were that of a short woman or teenage girl. Phyllis had been a petite woman. No remnants of clothing were found besides the shoe. Memories were refreshed and many remembered Phyllis taking belongings from the clubhouse and putting them in a car the day after her release. And most important of all, prior to her disappearance, she told friends she feared for her life. From who or why remained unknown. Perhaps she did say, but those who stayed living in Clearwater thought twice about naming names. The cause of death was evident. There was a bullet hole in the skull. The spot where the body was left was a swampy area. It was also secluded. It was about four feet below the surrounding land. Neighbors said that once the ground was under three feet of water and the place where the remains were found was once part of a pond. However, a few years later, the area was drained through a large ditch on the east end of the depression. No doubt the body was intentionally dumped there because it would be covered by water. Then, to deepen the mystery, on April 30, 1932, a letter was received from Mrs. E. A. Bridgeforth of Orlando, in which she said the description of the murdered woman were like those of a woman who disappeared from Orlando five to six years before. She wrote, quote, Parents of the Orlando woman now live at Waco, Texas, and communication will be established with them, end quote. The area residents still believe these were the remains of Phyllis Harmon. Then the story disappeared from the headlines. Mrs. Bridgeforth didn't write another letter, which meant most probably the bones were interred in a pauper's grave by the medical examiner, and the reason why, and whoever it was that put a bullet in Phyllis's head, breathed a sigh of relief. Because what's that saying about letting sleeping dogs lie? Well, this dog had a nice long nap.